So you're at you're at work. Where are you working these days? So I'm working at the Bread and Roses Legal Center. It's a uh, civil rights and criminal uh, defense legal center out here in Denver, Colorado. And they signed me up after ADX. They signed me up to be a paralegal here. Awesome. Yeah, it's an amazing job. You were already doing some stuff like that while you were inside too, right? Yeah, I had, I had started getting into like fighting fighting against the uh, BOP judicially, um, like bringing lawsuits against them and calling them out on their abuses. So that's how I met Bread and Roses. Actually, is that they joined in to help me in a lawsuit against the ADX, uh, the Supermax Prison, and so we became close and became pals, and we had a lot in common. Um, and from there, just a relationship developed and they brought me on. Awesome. That's, that's fortunate. That probably helps you get out, right? If you have a job. Um, it helps with every aspect of my entire life. (laughs) Nice. Seems like a good gig too. So just to introduce you, I'm speaking today with Eric King. He was recently released after being incarcerated since 2014, about seven years five of those in segregation. He was charged with using an incendiary device to commit arson after throwing a Molotov cocktail at an empty federal building in Kansas City during the uprising in Ferguson. And today, fortunately, he's out on probation talking with us about his history with the anarchist movement, his time inside and release, and how and why to support prisoners. Thanks a lot for getting in touch and and joining us. First time, long time. Happy to be here. Okay. Do you say first time, long time, but were you listening to podcasts in prison? No, absolutely not. Okay. So not <laughs> such a long time. <laughs> but so I did get to learn about some when I got out, though. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah that, I, was, um, I was thinking of having you on anyway, but then I got an email from a mutual friend saying that you were a listener in it. So that made it easy. Uh, but yeah. yeah, how did you... Yeah, I mean, one thing we can we can work our way to is like adjusting to life after being inside for seven years. But part of that is you've you're using a smartphone for the first time, and I mean, there were podcasts back then, but they kind of uh, they became more popular since you've been inside. So yeah, what's that been like becoming a a podcast fan? Yeah, so I didn't even though like smartphones and stuff like that were like they were around ten years ago, but they were still like so expensive. I never had one. Um, and so I've never listened to podcasts or done any of this stuff, had an app. Um, so I thought I was going to hate it. Honestly, I thought it was going to be like technology taking over my life, taking over my existence, but I found it like, I don't know. They're real. They're cool. They're real rewarding. There's lots of fun stuff to listen to. You can like, you can make it like your own, like personalized thing. Try. I can listen to podcasts about radical politics or about my favorite sports teams or both. Uh, so it's been, it's been like, I'm talking to you on a computer screen right now. Like I've never done that. Like that's wild. Yeah. You're in the future. I mean, 2014 <laughs> wasn't exactly not the future, but no, it was there, but like, I was poor white trash. I didn't have things. Mm-hmm. I didn't have those things. So what, what podcast do you listen to besides Antifada? Um, so I became a big fan of the final straw while I was inside, uh, with burst because that's just on radio right well i guess that's i hear um but like he would mail me the zines oh okay 
So I'd get to read it. And then like, so I would read like, it's going down also. Like I would read their zines. Um, and so now I listen, like there's a local sports guy named Nick Wright that I love listening to. Um, he's a Kansas city guy. Mm. Yeah. And so I'll just listen to like sporadic radical stuff if I'm feeling hyped, hyped up or feeling motivated, motivated or just do casual sports stuff. Okay. I, I would love to talk about sports. I'm actually writing a book about baseball. I don't know if you're a Royals fan. Of, of course I'm a Royals fan. <laughs> okay. But, uh, our listeners hate it. So we won't talk too much about that. Okay, fair enough. But but maybe future, I will ask, how did you feel in 2015 when the Royals beat my beloved Mets in the World Series? Oh, really? So I watched that on the TV. I was at the I was at CCA, uh, the private private uh, pretrial prison in Leavenworth, and we watched that, and I almost started sobbing. I didn't think it was real. Yeah, it. I mean, it, it was, was it was kind of it was like I mean I was sobbing too, but. Uh, <laughs> But the Royals deserved it that year. I mean, that were they were such a great team. The Mets were really worked their way up from nowhere. But my listeners are already turning turning off the podcast, so we have to move on to the Molotov cocktail or something. Yeah. Um, but congrats, congrats to the Royals in 2015. Uh, all right, so yeah, let's 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 talk about before you went in. Like, what was your your life like in the in leading up to the Ferguson Rebellion, and and how did you get involved with that? So I was doing what I considered like productive activism back then. Like I was a younger man, um, maybe a bit immature. Um, but so I was, I was living a life of like basically vandalism and anti-capitalism. Like I would not buy things. I would not pay for, I would not pay the state for things like heat or water. So there was lots of like, I guess it was individualist anarchism really, mm. uh, where I'm going to live as free as I want but also like use myself to like fight causes I felt were just. So like there's lots of like bank vandalisms or like dumpster diving, food distribution, like mutual aid sort of stuff. Um, and then when Michael Brown was murdered by the cops, that just, it, it enraged me. It broke my heart because we see how police act in poor communities. Like, I lived in the inner city of Kansas City. Like I see how police act. And how, how far is that from Ferguson? About three hours. Okay. Yeah, it's right. It's right down the road. Um, and so I hitched a ride to Ferguson uh, for a day and a half. I was there for a day, a full night, and then another day just to just see if I could do anything. And then my ride was going back. When I got back to Kansas City, what I noticed was that like nothing was happening. No one seemed to care. There wasn't street protests. There wasn't mobilizations. There wasn't anything going on, and that hurt me. Mm. I was like, how can I get the attention of Kansas City on what's happening over there? Because we seem to think we're better or isolated from this and we're not. And so that's why I decided to Molotov that congressman's office. Just to, And that was one of like probably a hundred things I was doing. Like It was just a couple months of reckless vandalization. Yeah, yeah. I was just going for it. Um, and so that's what I chose. That is the best possible action. And I, I did it poorly. I did not prepare. I wasn't the best radical when it came to that. It was more like, I'm going to do it. Mm. And then just find the supplies to do it. And it ended up, uh, I ended up getting caught pretty quickly. Now, um, be- this might be too sensitive to talk about, but I, I read in one of the articles, uh, an article in the intercept by Natasha Leonard 
that the Molotov wasn't lit. God damn it. I hate it when people say that. (laughs) Natasha, God bless her. Like that article is great, but that's taken from like a zine that came out my first week in time. And so the Molotov was goddamn lit. The building was made of bricks. Okay. That was bad reporting from Natasha to demand a correction. I tried to, you're the first person ever asked me about that. I'm so grateful. If it's not lit, it's just a bottle. Yeah. It's just a bottle. But the window I was throwing it at is about the size of like, put your two hands together. That's about how big the window was. Mm -hmm. And so the goal was to get it inside there because that was his actual office at the time. Um, And so bad thrower, bad thrower. Okay. What was it like getting caught? And how did you feel when, when that all went down? Getting caught was a nightmare. Um, I figured it was coming eventually um, for any of the any number of things. But when fire gets involved, that's when the feds get involved. And that's when shit gets kind of serious. So like it's one thing to bust up some ATMs. It's another thing when you start when you start doing the fire stuff. And it was a, a, a federal building, right? Where the congressman was, was located. A, yeah, it was a federal congressman's office. And so when I got caught, they just rolled up on me real casual. With the, I was about I was walking to work and they just rolled up with their weapons drawn and said, "Put your hands up." Like you don't know what this is, you know what time it is. Uh, and so at that point, I uh, I I kind of went numb. I don't know if that's normal, but like I just went in self preservation mode. Um, I didn't I didn't have anything, so it's not like I was I wasn't worried about like rent or my pets or car or anything. I didn't have anything. I didn't want anything. Uh, I was living a very anti consumerist life, so. My, I was worried about getting a hold of my mom. I was worried about getting a hold of some friends. I was worried to make sure that no one that knew what was going on would start talking about what was going on. Because that's a real fear in our community. Like, people rap. Mm. And so I, I was worried about that. But that was, uh, the emotions just, I turned off, bro. Like, the emotions turned off. How old were you? I was, Jesus, nine years ago, 26 or 27. Okay. So you get this pretty nasty charge using an incendiary device. Yeah. Um, how much time were you facing? So I got four charges. Um, the four charges were using the incendiary device, having the incendiary device, and then uh, like one of them was like creating this incendiary device, and then there was a fourth. So I don't remember what it was. So I was facing a minimum of fifteen, a maximum of life. Like that's the max they could have done. It wouldn't have been like legal, but they could have done that. And so over the pretrial process of like, if you agree to plead to this, we'll drop this. We uh we eventually got it down to 10. We were trying to get them to drop the, the one of my charges was a 10-year mandatory minimum. That's what the federal government does. And we could not get them off of that. And I was gonna lose that trial pretty, pretty easily because I did nothing to conceal the fact that I had done that crime. Uh, and so it just decided that the best option was to take the, the mandatory 10. And that's what we, that's what we played out to one of the worst days of my life. So you, you were looking at 10, you did about seven, right? I didn't, I did nine in six months, nine years. Yeah. 2014 okay. to 2023. I did my math wrong. That's embarrassing. <laughs> I should have just read straight from unicorn, Riot Instead of trying to write my own thing and getting the math wrong. <laughs> 
That's why I'm a podcaster and not uh, writing for The Intercept or something. Although I guess Natasha made a little mistake well, too. Well. Um, all right. And when you, your time in, incarcerated, you went through several different prisons, including every level of security from the, the low to the supermax. Yeah, so that's, that was wild. So I, I would love to hear about, you know, the differences between those prisons, um, you know, what it was like in the supermax versus the low, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So the low is typically where, like, first-time nonviolent offenders go. Um, I didn't have a record. I didn't have, like, gang affiliations. I didn't have a lot of weapons, stuff like that. So I got sent to the low. Um, I also, like, I was also privileged. Like, I'm a educated white male. Um, and they treat people differently because of that. So I start off at the low, and lows are, they're sweet as far as prison goes. Um, you're not going to get stabbed at a low. You might get in a fight if you're a jackass. Um, but where the problems with a low come from are staff and staff at a low are so petty because at a low, they understand that you're not going to do anything. You're not going to buck on them. Buck is like when you resist, you're not going to resist what they do. So at the low, I was getting searched relentlessly. I was, the guards were disrespecting my wife and kids. Um, they were, they were just doing small petty stuff to try to like push you and antagonize you. But the facilities were great. Like Jared Fogle is at that prison. The subway, the subway creep. Did you meet Jared? There. I mean, I wouldn't talk to him. Oh, okay. you couldn't pay me to talk to him. <laughs> uh, saw him around. But yeah, he's he plays tennis every day. Every single day of his life, he's out there hitting the hitting the rackets. Is he still getting the sandwiches? I <laughs> know. a lifetime supply, right? I mean, he was suing the families that sued him for defamation. Like that dude is just an all time low life. Yeah. Sovereign citizen too. Right. Oh my God. So, but like, that's what Lowe's have like great, great facilities, better food, better gym, better clothes, better commissary. And then the higher up in custody you go, the more violence there is. And also the shittier the stuff becomes like when you get to ADX, like everything you have is the worst you've ever had. The mattress was hands down the worst I've ever had. The the food was pure garbage. Um, the commissary couldn't have been more average. And you're stuck in your cell for literally 24 hours a day. You're not going anywhere and you're not around anyone. So compared to like at a low, you're in a dorm, basically. Mm-hmm. It's dorm bedding all around you. ADX, you're behind two doors. Uh, in a concrete box and you can't hear the people next to you unless they're screaming at the top of their lungs. So I would go weeks without hearing another human being speak. Wow. Uh, and I hated that. I didn't like that at all. Just getting like your, that. your food through like a slot in the door type situation. So we have the two doors and the inside door is like the old school bars that you would see. The outside door is like the solid steel door. So to drop off our food, the cops open the outside door they walk in with your tray and they put it in like the bean slot of the of the bar door. They just put it there and sit it and then walk out. Mm. So you don't have to talk to them. There's no interaction with them. They open your outside door, walk in, drop off food, walk out, close the outside door, and then you just you just grab it off your bars. And that's the same with laundry. That's the same with commissary. Um, that's the same with everything. Like I didn't interact with those cops at all or anyone. So ADX is is isolation on a dangerous level. Like I was only there for a 
year and four months. And I thought like, this is, this is isolation to such an extreme. I can't even describe it. And I met people that had been there for 20 years. So like 20 years of not having to speak, if you don't want to 20 years in a concrete box, the damage that I can do to someone's psyche is indescribable. Did, did you get any outdoor time at all dur during that? So their rec time, it's a, uh, they do rec five days a week and you go out by yourself. I was on C range. That's a disciplinary range. And you go out to rec by yourself every other day if you want to, but they only usually run it one day a week and they run it at 6 a.m. So it's like you can go out at 6 a.m. when it's freezing and you're cold and tired or you just go back to bed or mm. do your workout inside. When I was in K unit, that is the pre-release unit. I was there for a couple months. And there you get outside rec four days a week if they're running it. But once again, like you're in a kennel. So they have like a private, like private, they have a small dog kennel inside a concrete box. And so there'll be like four dog kennels in this box. And if you want to go to outside rec, they, they cuff you up, they walk you out there, put you in your own dog kennel, lock it. And then you do your hour outside, but you're in a cage within a cage within a prison and it can feel just so demoralizing and so like upsetting that often I wouldn't even do it. Like mm -hmm. I, I don't want to go through that process of feeling like an animal. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously hard for me to imagine. Um, what what does what does that do to your your head to be locked away like that for a year? And they it does it does a lot because they. They preach this like worst of the worst stuff there. That's what ADX is known for, like the big name guys, right? Like the terrorists and Ted Kaczynski and the Oklahoma bomber and the jihadis. But like once you get there, it's just a bunch of guys. Like it's just a bunch of vulnerable men that have like been through a lot. And the prison does everything possible to make you feel as if you're dangerous. Like anytime you have to leave the cell, like if I had a legal call, they would come to my cell. I have to strip out, spread my butthole, uh, lift up my crotch, all that stuff. And then they cuff you behind your back. And then they always have two guards with you, two officers with you. You can't walk anywhere on your own. And then one of them always has a steel baton. And so like stuff like that, like a steel baton to walk 12 feet to a legal call room. Or like when you go to visiting, same principle, they march you down the hall and they have to clear the halls to make sure no one else is around. And they, all this big procedure on the radio, like, are we clear to move? Okay, we're clear. All right, open door. Okay, we're out, closed door. As if, like, as if you're at Guantanamo. And I bet the guys at Guantanamo are feeling the same way. Like, what are we doing here? Like, this is over the top. Um, so they try to make you feel like you are a threat. Um, when you know in your heart that, like, most likely you're, if you're at ADX, like, you've been through a lot. Like, you've been hurt by this prison industry. So what it does to your head, like to my head, it just made me sad. Like it made me sad that so many people are going to have to go through this and will die there. Like there's hundreds of dudes there that will never get out ever. I mean, you say it's, so, it's like Guantanamo, but the, the, the supermaxes were created after nine 11. Right. So it, it's sort of, it's like a Guantanamo for us soil. Right. Well, this one was created in 1994. Okay. Um, but then after after all the 9-11 stuff, that's when they jammed it full of the jihadis. That's when they started doing like the single rec cages. Like things got tighter after that. And I'd argue like the restrictions are worse than 
like we don't have Amnesty International and the American Red Cross coming in there to check on people's mental health. Uh, we don't have like we don't have eyes because people stopped caring about ADX. The government did such a good job of convincing people that it was the worst of the worst that people stopped caring. Like those guys must deserve to to have this isolation and this pain brought upon them. But when you meet this man who, like I talked to the shoe bomber when I'd go out to wreck, his cell was, was I could, from my wreck cage, I could see the window of his cell. So I could yell to him, Richard Reed, he goes by Raheem. And like people, we can judge what he's, what he's accused of doing. And that's fair. Like it was a shitty, it would have been a gross thing. But when you talk to him, he's just a human. He's a human being who will never leave ADX for the rest of his life. And he, he was and, he was sort of entrapped into doing that in some way. I don't know if that's a conspiracy theory, but no, Richard Reed was not entrapped. Okay, <laughs> my mistake. He was a full throttle jihadi. Um, he believed in that. He saw he saw what the American government was doing in Iraq and Afghanistan and the bombs in Africa, the drones, and he just had enough of it. He wasn't going to stand for it anymore. He felt like his brothers and sisters were being massacred, and so he acted according to his conscience. But he'll never in his life, that dude's not old, he'll never in his life touch his child, his grandchildren, his parents. He'll never go to a funeral. He'll never go to a birthday. And they can't come over here and visit him. They live in England. And a lot of these dudes are from out of the country. And so their families will never see them again. And letters, like my letters would take anywhere from a month to two months to reach me. His can take anywhere from four months to a year because he has that stigma. Um, so what I experienced in ADX was just an immense sadness that people are going to get buried for the rest of their lives. And the movement, the abolitionist movement and the anarchist movement and maybe the communist movement, uh, it doesn't seem like people really care about the Supermax anymore or yeah. like they cared when it was Marion. But when it became ADX, it seems like people just stopped giving a shit. Uh, and so that's what it, that's what it did to me. It caused me the sadness that like, I'm not going to get these people out of here. I can't help them like I want to. And by the way, if I start rambling, you got to cut me off, bro. Will do. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, one thing that you mentioned in, uh, the final straw interview is that you noticed the jihadis were, uh, organizing to some extent. How were they even able to do that? Jihadis in every prison you go to are serious dudes. Um, so at ADX, there's probably about 40 of them, maybe even a little more. And like they've organized in a lot of different ways. Like there at one point in time, they did a massive hunger strike because they weren't allowed to do their communal prayer. And so what they do is they would have to yell to each other because they're all on H unit. And that's called the SAMS unit, the Special Administrative Measures Unit. Um, the district attorney has to put you on that. Um, so a lot of those like, I'm forgetting the district attorney's names, but like William Barr would have put people on Sam's. Um, and so they would yell to each other, like, we're going to start on this day. And they did it. And they would do it for, for months. Those dudes had to get force fed for, for months. Some of them lasted over a year of getting force fed. And so there was not the same sort of upcry or uproar for them that there was for like Pelican Bay. When the Pelican Bay hunger strike happened, like people all over the country was like, yes, get behind this. Um, when the bros at ADX did the hunger strike, it was nothing. It was radio silence. 
And so that's what they do because they are, they're committed to their beliefs. They stand by what they did. They're not sorry. They don't feel guilt. They don't see themselves as criminals. Um, so how were you able to stay political uh, in your time incarcerated? I, I presume you didn't meet a lot of other anarchists inside. I didn't meet any other anarchists inside. Not even Ted Kaczynski? No, he uh, he had got moved to Butner before I got there. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, I know. It would have been interesting to talk to him for sure. Uh, but so it was the way I was able to stay political is because I had good people having my back. So the ABC groups and the prisoner support groups really backed me. Um, and from like just about day one, Denver ABC was there for me. For the listeners, that's Anarchist Black Cross that supports yeah. political prisoners, prisoners of war, not just anarchists, but uh, a lot of anarchists. And um, you might want to check online. You might have a local ABC near you. You could get plugged into learning how to write letters to prisoners. Uh, that's something we can talk about later in the show, but, but keep going. Oh, and so, but like those people and my family kept me, like they kept sending me things and kept supporting me. So it was very easy for me to stay grounded in my beliefs. And then when you're an ethical person, like just cause you move from one spot to another, like you don't stop being who you are if that's really who you are. And so I was able to still get my books in, uh, spread literature around, um, try to organize whenever I could inside like small things. Um, and then just have people's back, like have mutual aid, like show solidarity to other people who didn't have what I had. And that's sort of like the way that I express my political beliefs inside. Like if I saw the guards crushing somebody, I'm going to stand with them. If I saw someone who didn't have enough food or enough coffee or books to read, I would then like use my resources, to try to help that person. Cause that's what mutual aid is. It's being there for people. And so that's how I express my political beliefs. And then I was able to get my writings out also thanks to thanks to my friends and family. So, and so were you able to do some kind of more formal organizing with, with prisoners at um, maybe the, the less secure facilities you were in? Um, I always was able to like connect with certain prisoners. Like not everyone's open to those sort of like discussions and beliefs inside, but I was always able to share literature. I was always able to do like long talks like just sitting in discussions, just like human to human um, on a on a very personal level and just talk about like where we stand and why we stand. Right. And when you connect with people on that level, then you can talk about like then you can move on to broader things like how the prison system isn't just hurting us. It's hurting everybody. It's hurting communities. It's hurting families. Like you can start delving deeper into these ideas um, after you connect on a human level. And then like if there was if there was like the Muslim dudes were, were beefing cause they got like pork on their tray. Like I'd ride with them. If, if guards were being really abusive or creepy, I would be able to write articles about it and get those out to people. So stuff like that, just like basic limited stuff to use your voice to try to be a positive instead of a, a negative, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that helped you stay sane as well. Just that you're able to remain somewhat true to your ideals despite being totally segregated. Yeah. And it's hard. Like, I'm not going to pretend like, cause it puts you at risk. Like you're always at risk from either the guards or other prisoners. Like I talk about this a lot, but like, I got Antifa tattooed on my face and you can't hide that. So you have to, you have to stand on who you are or you have to cover it up. Did you get that tattooed um, on your face while you're in prison? Yeah, I was, I got it before Trump. Um, 
but the whole point was like, this is who I am. I'm not riding with the Nazis. I'm not riding with the racist. Like I'm riding with the anti-fascists and the anarchists. And if I'm by myself, then I'm riding with myself, but I'm not going to back down on these beliefs. So that's why I got that. So, so how did that go over? I, I, I mean, I read about, uh, in the intercept article, how you were sort of, um, forced into this basically getting beat up by a, a Nazi in one situation. Uh, but in general, like how, how did that, how did that go over with, uh, other prisoners? So it went over poorly. <laughs> it was not positive. Um, staff seemed to have more problems with it than the prisoners did. Uh, staff would like the shit that the intercept talked about. That was the SIS at USP McCreary. Uh, that is a federal penitentiary in Kentucky. And they hated me. They hated my guts for this. And for the tattoo. One day, yeah. Yeah. For the Antifa stuff. Um, and so one day they woke me up at like 5 a.m., took me down to have a little weird meeting about whether I was safe or not. And I refused to tell them that I wasn't safe. And so then they're, oh, okay. So you are safe. Yes. I'm fine. So they then put me in a outdoor, like enclosed area and brought out someone who was like a known fascist and known Nazi. And they had had the same meeting with him asking him, are you okay with Antifa? Did you know Antifa's on the shard? And like, you know what he would have said, like, fuck those guys. And so they put us together in this area and they just watch. They're like, go ahead, have fun. And he didn't fuck me up or nothing. I'm like, but the dude was big. He was a big, he was a big person. Um, but that sort of stuff, like that happened. Like the reason I got in a fight with that Lieutenant was because he called me a terrorist for being an anarchist. Uh, he hated my political beliefs. And so he wanted to fight me about it. And then when I beat his ass, like then they want to press charges <laughs> and you beat the charges. And then I beat the charges. <laughs> Turns out lieutenants are not allowed to attack you in mob closets. Okay. You're allowed to defend yourself. That's good to hear. And but that's surprising to hear, actually. It's it's stunning. The fact that I won a trial is so... It's unbelievable. And I imagine it was because there was a lot of attention from Unicorn Riot and support from ABC and other groups. All the community... The community showed out for me so tough with this second trial. Um, It was the most I've ever had in my life. Like, this happened... Can you see that scar right there on my head? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. So while I was pre-trial, another guard who once again hated my guts for this sort of stuff, I was handcuffed behind my back and he took me to the shower to shake down my room. And when I came out of the shower, he started, he had to like pat me down, even though I was literally in nothing but my underwear. And he's like, lift up your ankle. So I do, even though I'm barefoot. And he smacks the shit out of my ankle with a uh, metal detector. And when I slam my foot down to say, stop, he literally picks me up. He's six foot four. And slams me directly on my head. Oh, wow. Handcuffed behind my back in my underwear. And I, the reason that I had to go to the hospital, I had seven stitches. But that sort of stuff happened because I was politically active and I was fighting this case. Like, they don't like it when you resist. And the Bureau will hurt you. They'll either hurt you with other prisoners or they'll attack you when you're vulnerable. So how much of that do you think was really political i mean were like uh the the prison guards were they particularly political or was it just like some of them knew what anarchism or antifa was and, and didn't like it if they didn't know they found out quick every prison i went to they talked shit about my support website they called me an in lover they'd say the word though of course mm-hmm. they called me an f lover for homosexuals and trans folks um 
they would make it a priority and then they would say these things in front of the other prisoners to try to cause problems. They would do this all the time. Uh, my wife, like this sounds almost unbelievable, but we're filing another lawsuit about it. My wife would send me letters talk like, and we would talk political stuff. Like that's part of who we are. And they ended up calling child protective services on her. And the reason they listed was her anti-fascist beliefs for talking about her and my idea, not bombing shit, but just like resistance to fascism. Mm -hmm. And they had child protective services go out to my home to try to take our kids away. And that was strictly on beliefs. And so I'm telling you, if you go into prison as a anti-racist or anarchist or any sort of leftist that's not riding with the status quo racist ideology, they will make things difficult and they they go out of their way to do it. And they, if they can't get you, they'll have someone else get you. If they can't get you, they'll get your family. They try this shit. They try you. And that's not like I'm not being sarcastic or like, look at me like it's documented in court. Like, this shit's real. So you help put together a book called Rattling the Cages. That's um, oh, yeah, some sort of tips for people who might be going inside. Uh, I, I probably too much to talk about here, but what, what were some of the, the things that you could tell listeners who might hopefully never, but could face some time? So let me say like, first I like rattling the cages. That was me and Josh Davidson. And I met Josh Davidson inside prison. He was a prison supporter at that time. He was in Baltimore now he's in Eugene, Oregon, but he's part of the Certain Days Collective that make the calendars, mm -hmm. the political prisoner calendars. Um, and so me and him became great friends. And over the years, we had enough discussions where it became like, let's we should try to capture the stories of these elder prisoners before it's too late, because they're not gonna they're not gonna be around forever. And then it became maybe we should try to capture the stories of every political prisoner, because everyone has different experiences, different races, genders, uh, identities. And so what that book does hopefully is teach people that like your life doesn't stop inside prison. You don't just like, you don't stop existing. The struggle doesn't stop. The loves that you have doesn't stop your feelings and values and the things that make you, you like you still exist within prison despite their best efforts. They'll try to steal your identity and break you down to be just a shell of yourself or to mold you into what they want you to be. This compliant racist, like, uh, buffoon, but the struggle doesn't stop and you don't stop. And like, you can exist and survive prison. So like, that's the, uh, that's the most beautiful thing about the book to me is just hearing how different generations of activists went through horrible things inside, but maintain their love for the people, their love for resistance and like who they are. Yeah. The, a lot of the media portrayal we get of prisons is when you get in there, you have to find your crowd or your gang or go with your race or something like that is is that accurate yes <laughs> that that is like one of the few things about prison like in tv shows that you see that is like it is true like uh, and i'm only speaking for the feds but like, i can't show up in a federal prison as a white guy and then say like actually i'm gonna sit with the black guys because i'm not racist you can't do that the white guys will beat the shit out of you they will get you off that yard um, so what you have to do is find ways to be who you are, but not get your head kicked off. Um, and so like, sometimes you're gonna have to sit around people you hate. Sometimes you're gonna have to hear things you don't like. Um, but 
that you can't you can't avoid you can't avoid those aspects of prison politics and it sucks it's gross having to sit at a table with a bunch of bunch of bigots and idiots like but it is that's life you can't avoid it what kind of prisoners were you best able to get along with jihadis every time wow every time bro i'm not probably not your first choice no it's weird like you i wouldn't have thought that but there was no like I'm a silly. I don't know if you can tell, but like, I like being silly. I like joking and being lighthearted. Um, and those dudes don't exist in prison. Like, I've met maybe three people I could just like let my let my guard down with. Um, at the low, I was good friends with a lot of the the gay and transgender prisoners because like I have I see myself as an ally. Like I'm a part of that. I want to help them in that struggle, that liberation struggle. Um, but the higher custody you go, like those people fall away, and you're left with the tough guys and whoever's left and so i always got along well with with jihadis there was one at florence medium named talib he was from texas he had gotten trapped to blow up a uh, a federal courthouse and got like 28 years um me and him got along great one of the best people i've ever met um at adx there was just tons of them got along great but so because they live an ethical life like they live like a life based off of what they consider their morals as someone who also tries to live an ethical life, like I can relate to that. Like we have that in common. We both stand on something we believe in, even if what we believe in is like radically different. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so yeah, let's go back to to letter writing and correspondence a bit. Uh, yeah. How important yeah. was that to you? To because you know I, I'm not sure if I ever wrote you a letter, but I certainly signed a bunch of cards for you. Um. <laughs> How, how important was that to to receive letters and cards from ABC and elsewhere? So, like, not being sarcastically, except for, like, one or two people, every friend I have in my life right now came from prisoner support. Like, besides my wife and kids, like, I have, like, one friend left from my free world. Every single other friend I have that I talk to on a daily basis right now is someone that wrote me. And so that shows, like, letter writing, if done, and, like, if done in a certain way can build relationships and it can heal and it can teach. Like I've learned so much from people that write me and I hope that I've been able to like help them understand things better too. Like my job right now came from prisoner support. Um, my lawsuits came from prison, prisoner support. My book with Josh Davidson came from prisoner support. The certain days calendar is prisoner support. So these things are priceless. Like, I, I used to get so excited when I was allowed to get mail because there was like all those years I wasn't allowed mail. But like when I was allowed it, uh, like when that stack of mail would come, it was like, it was Christmas. And I felt seen, I felt loved, I felt valued, I felt alive because prison's doing everything possible to make me feel the opposite of those things. But if I get this letter in the mail from Joey from Portland, like I'm Joey from Portland sees that I still exist. Jules from Washington sees that I exist. Brian from Minnesota sees that I exist. And then a lot of times those can become like deeper relationships. They can become friendships. They can become like family basically. And we need that inside. I I can't describe to you enough how desperately needed that is. Were you able to use the internet at all? No, no. And for five, like for one and a half years, I was able to use like J, J links or whatever, true links for emails. 
Um, but because of the charges, SIS has to approve and read every one of them. So it would take three or four days to get an email through. Mm-hmm. Um, but after, after August, 2018 till the end of my bid, I was never out of the shoe. So I never had access to, to email. So if, uh, if someone's listening and they, they'd always thought about writing prisoners or maybe they're thinking about it now and maybe they don't have an ABC near them, how, how would you recommend someone starting the process of uh, correspondence with a prisoner? Um, first thing I'd say, please do it. Even if it's not a political prisoner, even if it's just someone you heard about or just someone you look up or just happen to notice. I could give you a list of like seven social prisoners right now that I think are just the most high quality, like loving people on earth. Randy Platt at ADX. He's at ADX right now. He'll be there for the next 18 years. He's from California. He had, when I was fighting, uh, when I was fighting these guards pre-trial, like he had my back. Um, so he needs support, right? Prisoners need love. We need to feel alive. And so if someone doesn't have an ABC near them, um, obviously we can look up the list online. It's on their, uh, their website or like hit me up, go to, go to my Instagram. I'll, I'll give you a list of names. I'll give you 50 people and you don't have to like tell them your whole life story. You don't have to know every little thing about them, but what you can do is like introduce yourself and ask about them, like ask how you can help them, ask what they need, ask how they're actually feeling. When I would get those letters, it felt so, so strong because people would ask me about like, are you okay? Do you need help? What can we do for you? And that shows me that like you're seeing me as a human, as a human being that is vulnerable uh, and has needs and is like, is hurting. So Please, like, please write a prison. Write Oso Blanco. Write Bill Dunn. Uh, write some of these elders. Write Jojo Bowen and Kojo. Like, write these elders and, like, just express to them, like, you're still seen and we still love you. And if we can help you, like, what help do you need? That's all you need to do uh, to make someone's day and make them feel seen. Yeah, that's I, I, some of, something that you said on the Final Straw interview that I – uh, I, I needed to hear, and uh, at ABC, they they tell you if you don't know what to write, just write about your day because you know people are <laughs> inside and they don't get to go on walks or hang out with a dog or something. And you were like, that's maybe not the best <laughs> thing to write someone you don't know, especially. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's good. That's a good tip. Like write questions. You know, start the correspondence that way. Have a return address. Yeah. Yeah. You can't start a conversation based off like I walked my dog and it was nice outside. So if you're just sending that to send love, then that's fine. Like that's a great thing. No letter is a bad letter. But if you're actually wanting to connect with someone, like talk about your personality, talk about your passions and then ask about theirs. Like let's build a relationship, like a friendship. All right. So let's, let's move back to uh, a bit more about your time. Um, it seemed like it was quite an ordeal for you to win parole. Could you run through that process quickly? Um, so in the feds, I don't know if it's called parole or probation, honestly, but probation, either way, I, yeah. So I was supposed to get out a year ago and what happened was they kept refusing me halfway house and we couldn't figure out why. And then they finally said, like, Oh, okay, we'll get you halfway house. But like, we have to send someone out to your home to approve it. Okay. So they, they'd go and check my house and then not approve it. And then they say, oh, we'll give you probation, but you have to agree to these circumstances first. 
So, and it was weird stuff, like weird stuff that I eventually agreed to, honestly, uh, just get out of prison. Um, but they kept like moving the goalposts back. You're like, yeah, we'll give you halfway house on this date. And then it's, no, actually, never mind. We're not going to. And then, oh, it'll be this date. And I had lawyers looking at it like Sandra Freeman. Uh, they were one of my lawyers. They were trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. And then Bread and Roses did their best, my my now bosses. Um, and eventually my wife just had to call probation. She's like, what are you guys doing? Like, when is Eric getting out of prison? Why does this have to keep happening? And it turns out that my case manager at ADX, who presents himself as a nice person, wasn't filling out the paperwork right. He wasn't doing his job. And so he'd tell me, like, yeah, we're going to get you out. We're going to get you halfway house. And the next week, be like, oh, actually, we didn't turn in this paper or, or this didn't get signed. So just delaying month after month after month to keep you in this concrete box because, like, they don't care about your family. They don't care that you're missing birthdays and holidays. You think that was intentional uh, or just incompetence? Oh, it's 100% intentional. Okay. And it's not just me. They, they do it to almost every single person there. Like... I had a good friend named Tarek and he's a jihadi from Boston. Um, and he had this same situation where like they say they're doing this, but they're really doing this over here. And then you ask a third party and they tell you they're doing something else. And then you get the paperwork at the end and see like they were all lying the whole time. And they'd all signed off on this thing over here. Uh, just delaying shit, delaying your freedom, making it harder, not getting a hold of the halfway house, not getting a hold of probation. And that's, the ADX staff does not care about people. They don't see you as good or or as a human. They see you as the worst of the worst. So they don't want you out sooner. They don't want to help you. And that's not sarcasm. Like that's how they treat people. I could have been out last October. So so getting on this probation officer the the way that your wife did was what finally got you out. Yeah, and it turns out the probation office is great. Like we've got we've had a positive relationship with them so far. They're not they're not being like overly restrictive. They're not being disrespectful. They're not trying to harm me. They're supportive of my job. They're supportive of the book. Uh, they're just asking the basic shit that the law requires them to ask. But if my wife hadn't reached out to them, just to say like, how do we fix this? Like, what is going on? I could have still been in prison until February. At that point, they would have had to release me. Um, but like, it was just, it took direct pressure. Right? It took reaching out, reaching above the prison going past the prison to like who they answer to. And that's what worked. And that's what will always work. Um, yeah, just a couple more questions about prison before we move on to like your thoughts getting out and about politics today. Okay. Uh, did you have any positive interaction with prison guards? I've, I've read some stuff that, you know, a lot of them are just workers. There's no other jobs. They just take, take whatever job is available to them. And, uh, you know, it sucks what they do, but they're trying to make the best of it. Did you, did you get that impression at all? So I met like, I met basically three types of guards. And the first type is the old time guard who's been there 10, 20 years. And they do not care what your charges are. They're relaxed. They're old. They consider themselves old school and they will give you the bare minimum of what you're absolutely allowed. So they're not going to try to hurt you. They're not going to set you up, but they're not going to help you either. They're just going to give you the bare minimum. Like if I'm, if I'm allowed two pieces of paper, they're going to make sure it's only two pieces of paper, but they're going to make sure I get that two pieces of paper. The second type of guard is the, I think it's like the young military type, right? The young Nazi type. And like, they'll have the, 
they'll have the tattoos like the we the people tattoos. Mm-hmm. That's how I know someone's an enemy. Uh, if I see that on a guard, like this guard's gonna try to hurt me. And those ones see themselves as like patriots and they're defending the constitution and they're heroes. And they will say this. And those guards will actively try to hurt you. They will do everything possible. They'll steal your mail. They'll throw away your mail. They'll disconnect your phone. They'll disrespect your family at visits. They will search your cell and rip up your pictures or piss on your floor. They'll plant weapons in your cell. They will physically attack you or set you up to be attacked. And I've had all this stuff happen to me. All of it. Uh, Those guards are just a minute. Those are the ones that were at the Capitol on January 6th. Those are the ones that when the George Floyd protest broke out, they were on the streets trying to defend banks and police stations. Uh, they're, they're pieces of shit in every aspect of their lives. Every aspect. And it's not just white cops either. Like this is that mentality, kind of like kind of like with policing, how like even black cops are are white, white power cops, basically. Uh, or whatever. So it's the same with security or the same with prison guards. And then the third type, there's a third type of guard, and you don't meet them very often, but their whole thing is like, I hate this job. I hate my coworkers. I see you as people. Let me try to help you. And they're not going to help you. Like They're not going to bring you a cell phone. They're not going to call your wife for, for you and tell her happy birthday. But in my case, like they would print me off soccer scores, and they would bring them to me. When I wasn't allowed mail or books, because I went through like, a two-year period where I was just losing mail, Oh, I was banned from having letters, banned from having books. Uh, And so these guards would print me off soccer scores and bring them to my cell after lights out. Or they would print off like Kansas City Chiefs scores. Here's what happened today. And so like just small, small acts of kindness that are just wildly unexpected. Um, Like you meet maybe, I've met maybe four of those guards in my entire nine plus years in prison. But when you do, it's like, this is what... This is what could be, but this is what we get. And why is there such a difference between like these two sets of people? Like, why is the culture of brutality allowed to exist so much stronger than the culture of like treating us like a human? And I've never been able to figure out why that, why there's such a difference or why, why we have to be treated like dog shit. But for those four guards, thank you for being decent to me. So what, why do you think it's the old school guards who are a little bit more, I don't know, neutral what, what, like, was there like an influx of weird right wing patriots at some point? Yes, I think at some point the BOP started recruiting ex soldiers. I see, or or cops like ex people that tried to be a police officer and couldn't because they were that bad. Um, so you get all these ex military dudes who come in with this like severe trauma of having done horrible things, and they still need to see themselves as important or as uh, as good people. So they now they took on this other role of of being like troops inside prison. And so that's where I think it came from. It came from the Gulf Wars. Wow. Yeah. Um, so in the, the 2010s, and I, I think you're right, there's a lot less talk about it now. But in the 2010s, there was a lot more rhetoric, even in like um, in, in terms of elections about prison reform and that sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. there's been almost none of it. Like Trump actually might have done the best of, of any president, sadly, um, in terms of moving towards releasing people. Yeah. Uh, did you what, did you uh, experience prison getting like 
worse or at all better or changing at all in your in your years inside? So I'll say this every single time I'm asked and I'll stand on it. Prison only gets worse. The day you get in prison is the best it'll ever be. So in my years, like every single year, things got worse. The food got worse. The mattresses got worse. The, the clothes that were forced to wear got worse. The quality of commissary got worse. And then COVID gave, gave the prison system a, a template on how to like restrict communication. It taught them how to make non-contact visits, make video visits. It taught them how to delay mail or say, now you can't have mail. Now it has to be on a tablet. So now we can digitally scan and profile all your mail. Um, so prison has only gotten worse and it's only going to get worse. There's nothing happening to, to push it back. Um, there's a congressperson out of Ferguson, Missouri, Corey Bush, and she fought for me really tough. And I think there's very few people like that who would legislatively try to fight against the the turning tide of the bureau, and they try. Uh, you saw you saw Thompson get shut down, the SMU, because it was so violent. But that comes from us people pushing the people that make the decisions to now decide that prison is too shitty, like this can't keep happening. Like once you get past the low security prison, like you're not you're not programming. You're not taking like fathering classes. They're not jobs. You're not you're not getting taught how to be a welder or a plumber. They're not preparing you to leave, and they used to. Uh, I'm not saying it was good back then, but they used to like they used to have to provide you things. But over the decades, it's just they just do a slow chop, just like on like social services in in the country. They do a slow chop, and before you know it, you're left with with garbage. And prison right now is garbage. It is hard living. And if we don't force them to change it, they're not going to change it. It's going to only get worse. Now, I, I imagine you believe that there shouldn't be prisons, but uh, it, no. in terms of changing it, how could it get better? Like what kind of things, what, what's like realistic in terms of prison reform that could work? So I, you know, like I'm an anarchist. I don't like talking about reform and shit like that, but like it's real because we're, we haven't, Throw, overthrown this system. So until we do, we have to try to make it as much about harm reduction as possible in my mind until we're ready to push that line. And so things like food quality, food quality could change drastically, but the Bureau cuts money. They, they buy for a national menu from bulk produce. Most like they buy in bulk, send it to all their prisons. So we're all getting the same bullshit food. And then when you buy in bulk, you buy garbage. So to save money, they sell us the lowest quality food possible, serve it in the lowest servings legally allowed. It's like that could change. The amount of time we're allowed to talk to our families, that could change. 300 minutes a month is what federal prisoners are allowed. That is 20, 15 minute phone calls. And that's not okay. Uh, we, could have, we could have conjugal or overnight visits in the feds. They don't allow it. They'll never allow it. Uh, we could have video visits for people that have families far away. They don't have it. Like, that's basic stuff. We could have more phone minutes. We could have more visit contact with our family. We could have better food. We could be allowed in outside packages. We could be allowed in better clothes. Like, and we could also be allowed like less crazy sentences. Um, there's no reason for drug offenders to be serving life sentences in prison or 30 years or 40 or 20 or 10. 
Like, that sort of shit is crazy. Um, I, I mean, I feel the same way about violent offenders. Like, there's other options for justice. But instead, prison administrators get their bonuses. They take that government money and they spend it on trash and then reap the benefits of all the leftover funds. And we're left out in the cold. But there are real tangible changes that could happen. So in terms of those different kinds of like a, a drug offender versus a violent offender, um, the the discourse of, of people who, you know, maybe don't know very much about prisons is often like, well, well, someone will say, well, prisons suck because, you know, you, you get locked up for smoking weed or something. And then on the other hand, you'll say, well, prisoners are violent monsters and they need to be locked up. Um, so, so like what what would you say to, I guess, uh, that latter argument that like um, you have to do something with, uh, you know, serial rapists or something like that? First, I would, like, I would point out that the vast majority of prisoners are not serial rapists. Uh, the police do not catch most rapists. Like most women will never get justice for being raped or being assaulted. Um, but like I would argue that every single prisoner is a victim of capitalism. I would argue that even the most violent piece of shit prisoner was brought up in a way to where competition was bred into them and violence was bred into them to where they thought that was the appropriate way to behave, where they didn't know how to handle raw emotions or raw feelings or impulses. And if you're not taught this shit as a child, if you're not shown it by people, then you will never know a better way. If you're only taught vicious misogyny and that women are property or that trans people deserve to get their heads cracked open, then that's how you will behave. And so I would argue that we can reteach people. I would argue that we can show like through community healing, we can better people so that they don't do it again the next time. But if we just throw away every violent person, like it's not working. Because there's still violent people. If like if prison healed violence, then we'd no longer have violence in society. But that's not the case. So there, are, we got real lazy with how to handle people. We got real lazy, and why I say we, I mean society. We decided that if you do something we don't like, instead of trying to heal and figure out why you did it, and then the effect that it had on the victim, and then how to never do it again then we're just perpetrating the same bullshit over and over and it's going to keep happening. Prison doesn't work. But healing can work if we take the time and find creative ways to do it. And locking someone up for 30 years because they stabbed someone is not going to stop stabbings. It's not going to help the victim and it's not going to help the guy who stabbed. He's going to be stuck in the same vicious cycle. The victim is still going to have that trauma because they never got to heal with the person that hurt them. And society now has a big box filled with unwanteds that they can just disregard. It's bad for all parties to have this prison system still going. There's also been rhetoric since you've been inside. There was a, a documentary released on Netflix that argues that prisons are modern day slavery plantations. And that was yes. a, a yes. incredibly popular film. And so that's a, a lot of the rhetoric I hear. Um, so is, is that accurate from your experience? It's hundred percent accurate. It's hundred percent accurate. Uh, prisoners run prisons. The plumbing, the heating, the electric, the doing the lawn, cooking the food, ordering the food, uh, doing the laundry, sewing the laundry. 
literally every single thing in prison except for locking the doors is done by other prisoners. And we're paid 13 cents an hour. And in some prisons, if you say, no, you won't work, then you're thrown in the shoe. You're given a shot, a disciplinary report. In state prisons, they still have plantations. Like They're still growing food and cotton. Uh, and if they refuse to work, then you pay the consequence. There's a, there's a harsh penalty to pay. And so is it the slavery that people are picturing in their heads where it's master with a whip? No. But instead, it's master with a clipboard writing down that you no longer get to call your family if you don't work in the kitchen for 13 cents an hour. Or you don't get visits anymore because you didn't want to sew prison shirts or sew shirts for the police departments. Like I've been in prisons where literally the industry is sewing shorts for the police academy. Wow. Prisoners do that. Uh, and so you either have to be this weird creep who helps the police industry or you don't get to talk to your family. So it's slavery. It's a hundred percent slavery because you, it's not consensual. You're not getting paid for your labor. You're not compensated. You don't get, you don't get a 401k. You don't get sick days. Um, and if you refuse to work, you're punished severely. So if that's not slavery, I don't know. I don't know what else is. Did you do any jobs while you're inside? Yeah, I did. I hate myself for it. Uh, I worked. I ha- I got to be a uh, a library clerk at the low, and that was like where I helped people with their classes, where people would have to take classes to like to get more privileges. So I would help them cheat to <laughs> pass the classes. Um, that was my whole thing. It's called an ACE class, adult continued education. And my whole role was how can I cheat to help you pass this class? And then at the medium, my job was teaching yoga. I got paid $15 a month to teach 25 classes of yoga. Um, and so I was lucky as shit that that was my job. Some people have to rake rocks literally from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. That's all they do is walk around the rake moving rocks. That's their job. Uh, I got lucky that I had a friend in the gym who was able to get me the yoga teaching job. And that was the last prison job I ever had. Well, I mean, compared to breaking rocks or sewing cops shorts, that doesn't seem so bad. Why do you hate yourself oh, for doing right. those jobs? Um, I did have it better. And there's a certain amount of privilege. I'm a, like, I'm a white male, straight male prisoner. Like, I was able to have the privilege to sneak into those positions because I had friends in those positions. That might not have been available for other people. Like there's someone else that maybe could have used that $15 per month. Um, but like at least I can know that like I did a service, like I was trying to help people. But it's like getting that prison money feels gross. Like it feel when you get a prison paycheck, it does not feel like a work paycheck. It feels like my my how do I describe it? My abuser is rewarding me. Like now I have to depend on my abuser to like afford phone calls with my family. Like that sort of shit. And that's a gross feeling. Mm. But if I was getting compensated 10 bucks an hour, then I can feel like I'm getting, I'm taking from the prison system. Now they have to pay me. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, it does sound like you'd help some people out with, uh, with the, the ACE job at least. So, I mean, that might, was that some consolation? I did. And that was the only thing, like I was able to undermine the system. Like it was almost a form of sabotage. They give these people that can barely, some of them can barely read. And they say, you have to take this class or we're going to take away your phone calls. We're going to take away your visits or we're going to take away your something. 
And so then I get to sabotage their brutality and be like, no, 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 no. Here's the answers, friend. You don't know how to write? Let me throw them out for you. Here's the answers for your next class. Here's this, here's that. I'll do that shit four or five times a day to help somebody. So the little acts of sabotage always felt nice. Right. Or if you worked in the kitchen, it'd be like giving a little extra food. Mm-hmm. Like that's a little act of, act of sabotage. Um, all right. So let's, let's move a little bit towards your, your political outlook. Um, you, you, uh, went in, uh, during the Ferguson revolt and that I think continued and transformed until the George Floyd uprising in 2020. Um, I mean, I don't think there was a lot of Molotovs thrown in the first wave of Black Lives Matter in Ferguson there were, but, uh, in 2020 you saw multiple government buildings being burnt down to great popular acclaim actually. And some of those people are locked up. Um, so we shouldn't underplay it, but that, you know, that was millions of people participating in like basically participating in and supporting extremely insurrectionary tactics. Um, so, uh, uh, but now, but you haven't seen much of that sense. I think it'll, it's inevitable that it'll come back. Um, do you have an opinion on that, that sort of arc from, uh, from Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin to, to George Floyd? Do you have like an analysis of that? Well, I'd like to say like one of the things that we are seeing is like, we do see it in cop city where there are militant tactics along with political tactics, along with, uh, street level tactics, so the people resisting Cop City, who will also face massive repression, they've they've continued that trend. Um, and I didn't get to see the George Floyd stuff. I was in the shoe the entire time, and they took away books and magazines and radio when that happened. So you weren't even aware so of it. I was a uh, I was aware because I would get letters talking about it. Okay. And then I, when the cops took away everything, like I was aware then, like you can't have this anymore. Uh, but so I've been trying to catch up a lot afterwards, and like. Every now and then I'd get a zine later on that tried to help explain it. But I love like the militarization in the streets by the people to insist on change and to force it. I appreciate 110%. And it did seem like it escalated a lot. It seemed like with Michael Brown, uh, it was more localized. Like people took to the streets for Michael Brown and Michael Brown's community. It seemed like when George Floyd was assassinated by the pigs, that people everywhere said, like, no, 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 no more. This is enough. Uh, I got reports back, like, about a year ago. I was still inside, but I started getting zines about people in Europe, about, like, how they were taking knees and uh, burning burning cars in Paris and Manchester and Glasgow. Um, and I think, like, I think, I don't know if it was social media. I don't know, like, what brought people more together for George than Trayvon or uh rice or freddie gray or any any number of people but it was it's beautiful to hear about and i think if politicians hadn't gotten involved and hijacked those movements something real real could have happened Mm. but these liberal these liberal punk ass politicians get involved and they dilute the message they pretend like they're going to fix something they don't and then people get disillusioned and see like well it happened again we took to the streets. We put our lives on the line. We got made promises, and it's still the same shit. So I, when politicians hijack these movements, like it hijacks momentum, and I think that's on purpose. And people get tired. They get tired of like feeling as if what they're doing is a waste when it's not. In my mind, 
but that's not even your question, but like, that's my, that's how I feel about like what happened. No, that, that was definitely my question. Uh, my analysis oh. <laughs> is, is, a, is a little different because, um, and like not a lot of people agree with me on this, but I think the, the 2020 uprising sort of burnt out on its own volition. Like there was, oh. there was a, uh, weeks when the police, it, things were different in different places. It was happening all over the country, including in small cities, but in New York, uh, for sure, like, there was looting all all up and down Manhattan, like all the way up to Central Park, and everything was just looted. So people who were coming out to loot, to burn cop cars, whatever, they kind of accomplished what they wanted and, and stopped coming out. Um, I mean, there was still stuff afterwards. There was like a big occupation in City Hall Park that was really interesting and lasted until July. Um, but that was also against, it was set up by the politicians to uh it was set up by like a a a democratic controlled group called vocal to uh you know support this pseudo defunding budget but after a week of occupying the park the people saw what it was and said no we don't support this bullshit defunding and they were actually (laughs) booing the the democrats who were voting in favor of the defunding in the park that's tricky so it 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 transforms but then I think after that uh, that vote, people felt like they didn't know where else to go with it because the looting had stopped, the rioting had stopped. Anarchists were trying to get the rioting going again with like little black blocks, but they were like isolated and uh, and sporadic. So I I, I feel like um, the limit of the George Floyd uprising was there. People weren't sure how to push it any farther. Not that the the politicians took it over, but. Your narrative is is what I typically hear, including from a lot of people who were like in the riots and, and taking part in it. So, I mean, that's their play. Like, I think we could also argue that, like, to your point, like maybe we're not as creative as we need to be. Maybe we're not looking as broad as we need to look when these things happen and look at ways that we can resist. Like maybe running down the streets, fighting the cops, putting ourselves in jeopardy every single time isn't the best tactic for every single movement. Um, I, I think it'd be fair to say that like we've lost maybe a sense of creativity or a way to like push things beyond that, like natural limit of fighting. Cause we're not going to pick up guns. Like the leftist movement is not ready to arm itself and like start doing shit that way. So if we're not, then like maybe we do need to find another way of resisting besides just staying in the streets, getting pepper sprayed all day. Yeah, I agree with but that. It's, it's tricky. Um, so you, I mean, you haven't had a lot of time to uh, reacquaint yourself with the anarchist movement since you've been out, but um, do you have any opinions on uh, on anarchism today? Or, or maybe another way of asking the question is, um, how have you, I don't know, evolved in your political thinking since you've been inside? And what would you like to see from anarchism today? Um, that's a that's a neat question. So when I was locked up, like my anarchism was essentially revolved around like destruction i'm gonna hurt this bank i'm gonna hurt this office i'm gonna hurt these cops um there wasn't much growth there wasn't much unity involved and throughout my time in prison that kind of like evolved where like mutual aid became more valuable like how can i help as opposed to how can i tear how can i build instead of tearing like what structure can we create uh to to raise us up and so that sort of stuff became important to me because I got to see other people doing that. I got to see these mass mutual aid projects. And I guess through COVID, there was a lot of them. Um, I got to see how it felt when people showed up for me 
And then that taught me how like I could make people feel showing up for them. Uh, so my anarchism right now is based on love, man. It's based on how can I lift people up at all times? How can I never again be somebody's prison warden? I never want to be someone's jailer. I don't want to ever make someone feel uh, insecure, low, hurt, uh, vulnerable, manipulated. I never want to be someone's burden. And so that's basically what I do with this job. Like, how can I help other people in a way that I was helped? And so I believe in the anarchist movement. I believe in Stop Cop City. I believe in the people fighting for trans liberation. I believe in the people riding with prisoners. I believe in these movements, uh, even if they do get stable, even if they do have like shitty white guys, like doing creep stuff, like we can still evolve. We can still grow and heal each other and build a better world if we decide to. And I think a lot of people are trying to. I love anarchism. I, I still fight for this tooth and nail. Do you believe anarchism. that there should be a revolution? I mean, it depends on what type of revolution. Do I Am I ready right now to throw away my life and start get to the streets with machine guns? I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, uh, it would take a mass movement, and I don't know if there's a massive amount of people ready to do that. Do I think it will take a revolution? Well, yeah. Power power is not going to give up itself. Like Capital is not going to relinquish its, its grasp on the world. We're going to have to take it from them. We're going to have to say we want our communities and our cities back. But do I think that's going to happen in my lifetime? No. I, Emma Goldman probably thought it was going to happen in her lifetime. Uh, you know, the, the George Jackson Brigade thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. Well, it and did so, happen in Emma Goldman's lifetime. Oh, you're in a different place. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, she, she liked the, the Russian Revolution at first. She supported it at first. And then she, she went there and saw what it was. No, you're absolutely right. And like, she was also for the Spanish. She was over there in Spain as well. But like, it's a very tricky thing. And it's not like a simple answer to say, like, yes, I believe in revolution. But like at the same time, I'm not willing to, to kill somebody right now like to, to create that revolution. And that's what it would take. Like People would have to arm up. I don't think that killing someone would start a revolution. I think in the process of it, people will die. And that's what I basically, but like, you know, uh, Russia in, in 1917, which did not begin with the Bolsheviks, you know, it began with the people, with the workers, with the soldiers mutinying that was fairly bloodless. So I, I think it's possible to have a revolution that, you know, the, the people take power that's, you know, doesn't begin with machine guns in the street, gunning down whoever I think it's possible. Do you feel, that way? Do you feel like that style of like the Russian revolution, like, a people's uprising. Do you think that could happen today in like this American type of police state that the police would allow that to happen without force? I don't think they would. Well, the, I mean, in every revolution, the police end up going to the side of the people and the military. So yeah, I mean, that's, if we, if we think that a revolution should happen, there needs to be defections from the state. We need a lot of them. <laughs> we need a lot of them. We need a lot of people to turn those badges in. It's true. Um, but I believe in our, our ability to change and evolve as exactly. a people. And I hope we do it. Including, I hope we do it. including cops and military, right? Like people change with changing circumstances. Uh, and I would hope that they would. Like those people have hearts and like they're still humans. Um, and maybe at some point they will see that the impact that they're having on their fellow humans. And maybe they would see that they've been supporting a state that crushes marginalized people and props up capital. And I hope that that would happen. And it can't. The revolution will never happen without it. But I agree with you. It's to, you know, 
hear about the way you're treated by people with we the people tattoo, which is like in their minds, probably that's a revolution to, to them. That's like a revolutionary slogan, right? They believe in 1776, but then they're treating people like shit just because they've been convicted through a, a judicial system that they know is bullshit. They have to know. I always said that like the we the people tattoo really stands for like we my people, right. we white people, we white people in power. Um, but like maybe there's maybe there's a warm heart under that cold exterior somewhere. We can tap into it. Yeah, well, I mean they're they're humans, but I agree with you. It's like hard to imagine people like that coming to the right side. <laughs> it is hard to imagine. Um. I want to ask another question. Do you have enough time to, to talk a little bit more? I'm, I'm, this is a really fascinating discussion, but I want to keep you too long. Yeah, yeah. Let me just open my door real quick because I think I saw one of my bosses outside, so I just want to check something real quick. Sure, go so ahead. I'm Take your time. I'm doing this interview, but you guys can come in here if you want. You're cool? Yeah. Okay, great seeing you. Yeah, all right. My bosses are very supportive. Seems like you have some cool bosses. That's good the to hear. Z- Z and Erica, Z Williams, Erica Unger. Please put that on camera or on tape. <laughs> Those two people are beast. They they they've built a company based on the world that they want to see, and they they treat me so great. They treat me with so much love and solidarity and respect. And it's not tokenism. It's not patronizing. It's you're human. We love you. Let's work together to make this world a better place. I love those two. That's beautiful. So, yeah, I wanted to ask about, um, we mentioned uh, Jared Fogel before and, uh, and how he's a sovereign citizen. Um, when I was doing Books Through Bars, we would get a lot of letters from people who were intrigued or persuaded to this idea that there were alternative ways to fight their convictions yeah. um, or their charges. and. Yeah. Did you meet a lot of people like that? And like, what's your opinion of, of that kind of thinking? So when I was in Florence medium, I met, they have a huge sovereign movement there when I was there in 2016. Um, and my, one of my hustles in prison is typing. I, I would like buy the typewriter ribbon and the ink and I would type for people. I would type their legal motions, their, their arguments, their complaints. And if you had money, you paid me. If you didn't, you didn't like, Give what you have, take what you need, that sort of thing. Um, and so the sovereigns, those dudes would just harass the courts. And they were adamant that not only were they going to get out of prison, but they were going to get hundreds of millions of dollars for their imprisonment. Um, and so I got in trouble once. The head of the CTU, the counterterrorism unit, he came over from ADX to interview me at Florence Medium. And he was like, why are you typing for these guys? It's not not your business. I don't. You don't have to ask me about that. And they're uh, they said something along the lines of like, "We're just giving you a heads up. If one of these guys files one of these liens you're typing, you're, we're putting you in ADX and we're charging you. That's twenty years in prison. So type what you want, but be careful. So they don't just throw that stuff away. They have to evaluate it and respond to it in some way. No, are you talking about like the liens and everything? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what a lien is, but. A lien is like what the sovereigns do where they like send in like it's a hold on your assets. So they were like mailing a lien on a judge or something. And then the judge's house would have like a hold on it or their car or whatever. Um, until like, honestly, I honestly, I don't know the full process of how it works, but I know they'd get 20 years in prison for it. Uh, 
And so when I would type these things, they would mail them to the courts and then those people would get shots. They'd get disciplinary write-ups for harassing the courts, for threatening, for, for whatever. Uh, it's a mess. The sovereign movement is weird. Like, and they're all, it's based on white supremacist stuff. Like no government can tell me what to do. Uh, and so there's like the black sovereigns that are like the Moors and then the white sovereigns and they hate each other okay. where they did where I was. It's a weird, it's a weird situation. Why? Um, I mean, besides the obvious, why do you think it's so popular with black and brown prisoners? It's a sense of empowerment, a sense of ownership. You've been living your whole life, basically being told you're second class and trash. Uh, you've watched every government and most of society tell you you're not worth anything. And then you have this movement that says, like, not only are you worth something, like you own yourself. Like, they owe you money. Like, not only are you not trash, you're worth hundreds of millions. Your name alone is valuable. You are a king. And that's stuff that, like, white, white men maybe are taught from birth. I'm valuable. I'm important. What I have to say matters. I can be whatever I want to be. Whereas if you're not taught that your entire life and you're taught the opposite, finally having a chance to feel important, to feel strong, to feel in control in a situation where you have no control, that's valuable. And I get it. I get it completely. So it, it used to be in the 60s, 70s, 80s, various black nationalist groups were really central to prisoner organizing. Uh, and I, I, do you think that the, the pop, the popularity of the sovereign citizens type thing amongst, like you said, uh, people who are into the, the Moorish aspect of it. Do you think that's kind of replaced that sort of organizing or do they, they both still exist? There's, I don't know what happened. I don't know why, like radicalism left prison. Um, I could argue like, like the commercialization of like existence maybe had something to do with the, like, what you have became more valuable than like what you stand for. Um, but like, I'm not going to pretend to know like why a young black man wouldn't rather be a Panther than a fashion, like whatever. I don't know. Um, but there's no radical movement in prison. There's gangs. And then there's the Moors basically, or the Muslims, the black Muslims. Um, and they've been around since, since forever. So I don't know what happened, but like you could argue that sovereigns that like people look for something to to belong to. They look for something that's going to make them feel built up, that is going to give them a purpose. White, black, Mexican, Asian, it doesn't matter. And you will find it wherever it exists. And if it exists in sovereign citizenry, then people will go to that. And I argue that's what happened with Trump. White guys clung to Trump because it gave them this feeling of value. Now they get to feel important again. They're they get to feel like they're in control. Like I have a purpose now, and it's to make my country great. So you're gonna go where if you don't have that inside of you, you're gonna go where it's given, and that's what seems to happen in my mind. It was a Nation of Islam and and related Black Muslim groups still prevalent. I've never met a Nation of Islam guy. Wow. I'm sure they're around. Um, black Muslims are powerful. That is a powerful core group. Um, and they don't take any shit. But it's like a splinter from Nation of Islam. It's they're no longer connected. Uh no. As, and I, I don't want to speak for everybody, and, but in my experience, I I was at every single custody level. I never met a single Nation of Islam person. Hmm. So the normal black Muslims, they are not in a lie. But they are legit. They will give you the business. Okay. Yeah, I, they take it seriously. 
Um, Maybe in state prisons? I don't know. I don't know. All right. I've, I've got another kind of random question to throw at you right. uh, that my listeners might be interested in. Were you able to follow uh, the the Epstein uh, suicide <laughs> at all? And do you have an opinion on that? I mean, you weren't in a, you weren't in that prison, but it was a federal prison. I met people who were. Uh, I met people who were there in that on that same range when he when he killed himself. Um, so there's there's two angles to this, and it's tricky because the first angle is he killed himself, and that's that's a real thing. People kill themselves in isolation. Like just because you're powerful or rich doesn't mean you won't get destroyed by prison. And I don't want to diminish the fact that people kill themselves in prison all the time. And it's sad. No one should have to die in prison. But the flip side is, are you got a camera outside your cell and all of a sudden it gets turned off. And and, and also, I guess in that prison, people, he wasn't in isolation and people weren't really, I guess guess he was for like a week or something, but People weren't really killing themselves in that prison. I, I think I, I remember hearing that no one had done it in many years. So we have to remember he was looking at multiple life sentences too. Like he knew he was going to die in prison, but I also don't think he killed himself. Yeah. Uh, we he, know he was still, you know, pending. He was had a court date like an, a week later. He could have gotten out. That black book was going to come out. I feel, and I think they took. I think they took care of him. I think. I think they either let another prisoner in there or they sent a guard in there. Um, oh, shit. What the fuck? One second. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was probation for a second. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> um, but no, most likely the prison murdered this man because of the secrets he had against other, like, the elite and capitalist society. I think I've come around to that position too i i don't i like to resist conspiratorial thinking but just the more i I learn about it it's uh very fishy to think that someone who is that rich and you know he was he was getting laid in prison he would have like meetings with his lawyers and they would send in like a 19 year old paralegal and leave leave her alone in the room with him and if that's the kind of time he was doing while he killed himself it's kind of hard to believe on the other hand, he had a lot of time to consider what it would be like because he had been somehow locked up before, and maybe he was just like, "I'm, I'm over this," and he had he would, had time he to think about how he would do it too. Yeah, his prison life would have been very different. Like you saw what just happened to uh, that the gymnast coach from Michigan State. I forget his name. Mm-hmm. And like, he got too. Yeah, he got booked like thirty-eight times, and that would have happened to Mister Epstein. Like he would have got butchered. Yeah. Uh, and he would have known this, but I think I think the I think the government sent someone in there to get him. Okay. <laughs> they got it. We probably will never really know, unfortunately. We can only conjecture. Yeah. Um well I got one more question for you. Thanks so much for talking. Um how do yeah, you how do you envision your life from here on out? I'm sweet. Uh I've got a great career with people I, I respect who respect me and trust me with responsibility. And that's a great feeling. I've got a wife and two kids um, that I just love with all my heart and I've got great comrades. So my goal right now is to tear down the prison system. However, legislatively by keeping people out of it, by helping figure out creative ways to reform it by supporting people within it, like my whole existence right now is like, how can I push this movement forward in a positive way without hurting me or my family or jeopardizing my career or freedom? 
Uh, but there's just great, like, life is beautiful. Like, every day we get to, like, smile or feel sunlight or, like, see an animal or eat something you like. That's the best day of your life. Um, and I think about that all the time. Like, I've got my boss outside right now just letting me live my life. And that's beautiful. I got these omega-3 cookies. Like, that's, that's the best cookies I've ever had. Uh, but I also remember that other people are having the worst day of their life. Other people inside will never have that. So I, I'm blessed and now I need to, I need to pay that forward. And that's how I see my life going is trying to help as many people as I can and be a voice for those who need me in any way. All right. Thanks so much for talking. Uh, if you're listening, check out the show notes. There's going to be links to everything we talked about and please write a letter to a prisoner. Uh, I think Obviously, it will make their day, and it'll make you feel pretty good, too, and it doesn't take very long. Um, thanks so much for talking, Eric King. Uh, enjoy so the rest much. of your work day. 